This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Not only did he knock my tooth out, he split the back of my head open which was at least an inch long. As some boys found out the hard way, if they did speak up, uh, the result of that was just another bashing. 1947. The war has just ended and a ship docks off the shores of Fremantle. The boat has arrived from England and as the gangway connects the ship to dry land, almost 150 children step a foot on Australian soil after a long journey across the Indian Ocean. They left home full of hope, promised a new life down under. Most of these children are orphans and all are seeking escape from the terrors of war-torn Europe. But their journey is not complete yet. Almost 100 kilometres north of Perth would be their home, a desolate farming property in a town called Bindoon an isolated institution run by the Christian Brothers, a Catholic order. From the middle of the 19th century until as recently as 1970, 130,000 European children were sent to the Bindoon Boys rehoming program. Yeah, I remember my first sh- first time I turned up to Boys Town was in Cottage One. Some of the boys were as young as eight, and now some claim as young as three all vulnerable and without parental protections. The children were commonly told they were orphans, only to find out decades later that their parents were still alive. Most were deported without the consent of their mothers and fathers. But instead of being provided refuge, collectively, these children were treated much like slaves. They were set to work constructing schools, dormitories and kitchens in Bindoon. Every day, they hacked the ground with picks and shovels and mixed concrete by hand in the blazing heat. Those unable to cope with the back-breaking labour were flogged, sometimes until their bones were fractured. He came at me with a belt and uh, just kept flogging and flogging me and I ended up underneath the sink. Uh, He dragged me out, he kicked me, he punched me and continued to flog me with that strap and uh, the last thing that I remember him saying was, I fucking warned you. But that wasn't all that these boys suffered. Nearly all of them shared one thing in common. They all suffered from sexual abuse by the Christian brothers. We're talking about the worst sort of abuse. There's no doubt about that. I remember coming back from weekend leave. We were made to take off all our clothes, being strip searched. How can you explain what it's to feel like to stand there in front of a room with everybody staring at you, telling you to, to lift this part? bend over this way, do this and that. When you're 12 years of age as a a young boy, that's not human. So why is child sex abuse in the Catholic Church so rampant? Can we define the difference between child sex abuse and institutional child sex abuse? Why does child sexual abuse happen in the first place? Are pedophiles drawn from the Catholic Church or does the system itself create the ideal climate for child sex abuse? That's on today's episode of Motive and Method. 
Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the Bindoon Boys Home case. Uh, it's a case that I was involved in back in the 90s. It involved the ritualised sexual abuse of children who were sent from Europe in the UK for a better life uh, in Western Australia. What happened, however, is that they were physically, psychologically and sexually abused on a day-to-day basis. A horrendous tale. It still affects me when I think about it. And to give that a broader context, we're actually going to be speaking with a good friend and colleague of mine, Peter Gagati. I've been working with Peter at the University of Newcastle since 2017. He's a colleague. He teaches with me in criminology. He also has a background in law. Aside from all of that, his personal history is he's a survivor of institutional child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, He was abused when he was a boy. And so we're going to be talking to Peter about his lived experience because again it takes all of the the theoretical knowledge that we have and really kind of gives it context I think that will really help us understand the nuances and ultimately the ongoing impact of this type of abuse. I think it's the interface between lived experience, the academic and the historical narration surrounding these cases that uh, our listeners will find very interesting. I'm looking forward to speaking with Peter. If we start with your history, tell me a little bit about your childhood and I guess how you came into contact with the Catholic Church. Yeah, sure, Zant, and um, and thanks for the opportunity to be with both you and Tim. I say to, to my students a lot that at one level, I feel like I'm a really fortunate person because I was born in Australia in the 1960s and, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed and male, you know, all the, all the things that give somebody of my era a bit of a head start in life, but it wasn't quite that straightforward for me. My parents were both very devout Catholics. In the six months before I was born, my paternal grandfather died of a heart attack. My father was admitted to hospital for months and months and months with tuberculosis. And then just as um, he got out of hospital, mum and dad's firstborn child, who was, if he, I think at the time I was born, he'd have been about 18 months old, he died a couple of months before I was born. So if you think, you know, sort of what are you going to get for Christmas? So it wasn't a real good start because uh, I'm I'm not, um, you know, I'm uh, more interested in institutional child abuse and in, in the law than I am in biology. But my basic understanding of biology is it couldn't have done my mother any good. All the hormones that were racing around in her were also racing around in me. And then over the next four years, my parents had four more children. And what I got for Christmas was an incredibly serious kidney infection that saw me in hospital for about three months and then convalescing at home for another month or six weeks. And my parents, in their infinite wisdom at the time, thought that because I had a sister who would start school the following year, that they couldn't have me and her both starting kindergarten at the same time. So I started school about four months behind everybody else. And by now, mum had developed agoraphobia. And for those who don't know, agoraphobia is a a fear of basically being outside, fear of open space. So on my very first day of school, about four months behind everybody else, mum stood at the gate, which was as far as she was comfortable going, waited for a boy with the right uniform on and told me to go with him, get off the bus where he got off the bus and then look for him again that afternoon to get back on the bus, to get back home. 
So my very first day of school was I knew nobody. My parents didn't take me to school. And I was with a, with a boy that was a bit older than me, probably by two or three years, didn't know him either. So that was kind of like my start to my school career. I wrote a book a few years back and the the subtitle was Memoir of a Shy Young Fellow because I didn't know it at the time, but I was incredibly withdrawn. And, and certainly the, the priest that would come into my life later on looked for vulnerabilities. So he very definitely targeted families like mine. So devout Catholic families, uh, a working father who was probably working multiple jobs as mine was, a mother who was probably struggling with her own mental health issues and way too many kids in the household. And somehow or other, he seemed to hone in on the fact that I didn't have a good relationship with my father. He was constantly cranky. And when he was cranky, he was very physically abusive. I mean, it's hard for me to say that, but that's probably the only way to describe it. So I definitely think, Tim, you're right, that that my abuser, James Patrick Fletcher, he almost, I don't know, he, he sensed it. And every victim he had subsequent to me fit that same set of criteria. So that was my introduction to Catholic education, going to that infant school. And it was run by an order of Catholic nuns called the Sisters of Mercy. And again, one of the ironies of this that didn't dawn on me until years and years and years later, but if there were any nuns in that order that knew what mercy was, I'd be very, very surprised. I was thinking it was ironic myself. Yeah. The irony is, you know, it's tragic because they were by and large, and look, there are one or, one or two exceptions that I can think of, but by and large, they were incredibly aggressive women who took every opportunity to inflict physical punishment on on children. And and part of it too is that in hindsight, like I, my life, I've spent a lot of it reflecting on the sexual abuse of children by Catholic priests and so on. But the physical abuse that I suffered at that convent school, these days would see those nuns locked up. There's no doubt about it. So I went from that sort of environment into a Morris Brothers high school. And again, violence was just their, you know, their stock in trade. That's what they did. And it was there. And again, probably because of my father's aggressive nature, mum's personal vulnerability that it seemed a bit normal for people to be violent. Yeah, it, it did. Could I just ask you, so, sorry, just so that we get a handle on what you mean by aggression and violence at Maris Brothers, yep. what actually happened? Um, they, so anyone, and you might be able to relate to this, Tim, but the Maris Brothers loved using the cane. They loved using, they had, I remember one particular brother had a, a ruler that was probably, I don't know, maybe half a metre long, 50 centimetres, and on one edge of it, it had a, a metal strip inserted in it so you could draw, you know, very precise lines. I had he, one of those rulers. <laughs> you had one. Yeah. yeah, well, this particular Morris brother used to, it seems to me in hindsight, that gained a lot of gratification from using the metal side of that ruler, that metal edge, to hit people like me and others. I mean, he didn't really single me out on the knuckles with that sharp edge. Wow. So, yeah, that that sort of thing, the cane, humiliation, as I said, stock in trade for the Morris Brothers. So psychological and physical abuse. Yes. And was it regular? I mean, did you expect it every day or at least every once day, a week? Tim, every day, yeah. It was routine. And what sort of things would trigger this 
sadism. Look, it didn't take much. We had one brother, and another irony in this, who was supposed to be our music teacher. And I remember one year, we never picked up a musical instrument. We never listened to a piece of music. This brother would do things like decide he was going to have a spelling bee of all sorts of um, musical technology or names of you know people, famous composers, that kind of thing, Beethoven. And if you couldn't spell Beethoven, then not only did you get the cane, but every other boy in the class got the cane. So this was, it was so routine. And again, going back to a personal perspective, I was this incredibly shy, introverted person in the first place. So I ended up, the best way I can describe it is you go around in ever decreasing circles until you're almost immobile. And then into that mix comes James Patrick Fletcher, who on the face of it, seemed like a very friendly, giving person who wanted to help my mother out, take a little bit of the burden off her shoulders by spending time with me. Mum wouldn't have trusted anyone else in the world to just take me away from the house, but he was a Catholic priest. She's yep. about Catholic. You know the rest. It's something we discussed also, this immutable belief in the goodness of the church if you're devout. Yes. That the, the last person you would anticipate would be a danger to your child physically, sexually, emotionally, would be a priest. And yep. the flip side to that is, for those that did complain in those sorts of households, they were often not believed. Yeah. And Tim, you make a really good point there because years and years later when all this did come out, my father for a long time didn't want to believe it and, it, you know, got a real interest in that sort of cognitive dissonance for one of yes. another term but he did one day say to me that had I said anything when this was going on that he'd have given me a flogging which and and that that was no exaggeration because any excuse for dad to give me a flogging but not only would he've given me a flogging he'd have dragged me down to see the priest and forced me to apologize and get another flogging and cop another flogging so he would have made you apologize to your abuser yes yeah he admitted that to me, Xanth, that he would have made me apologise to my abuser. And although that didn't happen with you, to validate all that, I've had, you know, a lot of cases where that in fact has occurred. Yeah. And I've had cases where, you know, boys were sexually abused and they they were punished by the priest for sinning by being sexually abused. Yeah. So it, yeah. it just put their head in a complete spin all the time. So Fletcher basically groomed your parents yep. to access to you. Yeah. He then initiated the sexual abuse. You obviously didn't tell your parents. No. Did you not tell them because you knew you'd be punished or was that was that why you kept it a secret or did you think about telling your mother? No. No, I, I think Zeth, Fletcher was so good at grooming me and other boys subsequently that he normalised the whole process. So it would start out, so you imagine a, a, a family that's, um, you know, working working class, very, very hard working class, you know, just struggling to pay the bills. And here comes along a, a smiling, fun person who's buying lollies and drinks and bags of chips and and things like that. And then it it slowly progressed. And he was even, he was even smart enough, I think, to really hone in on the fact that I had a bad relationship with my father and the affection that I had never, ever received at home. I mean, I, 
as we sit here, I don't remember my father ever offering me anything remotely like affection. And because of mum's own mental health issues and the fact that she had four more children after me, meant that I think the first time I ever re recall any affection from mum was when I was an adult. So along comes Fletcher offering affection and statements like, well, this is the sort of stuff that your father should be showing you, teaching you, doing with you. The thought that I was in anything other than a sort of a consenting arrangement, if you like, and I know that that sounds ridiculous, but as a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, it was like, I'm part of this, not a victim. I was wondering about your age. And so it, it, it started in early adolescence with Fletcher. Yes. Yeah. And the grooming started before then? Yeah. So I, I think I met him, Tim, when I was about 10. The grooming probably went on. The, my parents and grandparents, my maternal grandparents were beautiful people and I spent a lot of time with them. So Fletcher also groomed them. So that went on for a couple of years into sort of puberty. And that's when, by then, he was ready with his more serious sexual offences. He was playing the long game. He was. They're bad, not mad. Yeah. They're strategic thinkers. So that's yeah. what I was going to say. Do you think that was his intent when he selected your family, that yeah. he intended to groom you long-term yes. yeah. to access no. you when you hit the right developmental stage yes. at which he was sexually attracted to you? Yes. And there's no doubt about that, Xanth, because his subsequent behaviour... So what? So say, for example, when I was maybe 14, 14, 15, so the abuse was going on, but he also had other young boys in the pipeline behind me. And again, easy for me to be very clear about that in hindsight, but there's not a doubt in my mind that, that he knew that there was an inevitable point where he, either I would reject his advances or he would not be attracted to me anymore, and he had somebody else ready to go. And he did that until he was caught. It was industrial scale by the it sound was. It was. Yeah. yeah. How old were you when the abuse stopped? It was not long before my 18th birthday. And I've had another little irony in all this is that I've subsequently found that two others of his victims ended the relationship the same way. I think, so for example, maybe when I was about 15 or 16, I told him that I was uncomfortable with the things that we were doing. And again, being a good Catholic, he very, very kindly suggested that I should just go to confession because I'd be forgiven. But don't don't mention his name because he didn't feel bad about any of this. But if he did, he would go to confession. So that that there was that was the first probably hint to him that I was starting to get to the point where I wouldn't accept this. But when I was about seven and a half, he made an advance and for the first time in my life probably I snapped and was assertive bordering on aggressive and told him if he ever did that again and um, there was a couple of swear words thrown in that I'd kill him and I maintained a relationship like a friendship with him but he never did touch me again. Can I ask this and I know were there other priests involved as well not well, in your Tim, abuse but were there other people in that institution who were sexually abusing boys? Yes yeah without doubt people in his um, you know, in his cohort, if that's the right way to describe it, around about his age, there's not a doubt in my mind that other people, including the bishop at the time, knew what Fletcher was up to. An example of that is that probably when I was about 16, Fletcher told me, because I he lived with the bishop in the bishop's house in, in a place called Maitland, and one day he told me that the bishop had banned me from being in the house. 
so after that he would sneak me in a back door into the place so um there's there's not a doubt in my mind because some of some of his peers have also been convicted um people like Vince Ryan who died not long ago same age as Fletcher victims all around the place lived in the same part of the world as Fletcher I wouldn't call it a pedophile ring but I have got no doubt that a lot of people within the church knew this was going on and knew who the other offenders were and basically protected them at the expense of vulnerable children. I want to pick up on two things. One from something you said a moment ago when he suggested you go to confession um, to absolve yourself because you were uncomfortable with what was happening. You said that he didn't feel guilty about it did he actually did he actually say that to you he was totally he didn't see anything wrong with this no no what what we were doing was quite okay quite normal quite appropriate and again Zanth, think about this from the perspective of a young very messed up boy incredibly vulnerable and being being given messages at at church and at school about the sorts of things that would send you straight to hell And I'm doing this stuff with a Catholic priest who, on the one hand, is telling people how to live their lives, and on the other hand, is doing things that were incredibly contrary to Catholic doctrine and telling me that he felt no guilt. And the the other thing that struck me is you said that the, the church protected these individuals. In your experience, did you see priests who be moved on, you know, between different areas once you know, rumours started, complaints started. You saw that? Yeah, over and over and over again, Xanth. And in hindsight, because for a long period of time, Fletcher lived with the bishop at the bishop's house, there was a succession of other very strange priests, bad behaviour, alcoholics, people who would make your skin crawl, that came in and out of that house because it was almost, each of the bishop's houses, I think, was almost like a, a clearing house for all of their problems. So Fletcher himself, for example, started out as a normal sort of diocesan priest in a parish. When someone raised a concern in one parish, he was moved to another parish. At one point, the bishop made him the bishop's assistant. So he was literally under the bishop's wing seven days a week. But when that didn't work, he then sent him to the furthest reaches of the diocese, you know, little parishes out in country towns in the middle of nowhere. Where he re-offended, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a chilling story, and look, stop me at any point, but I remember going to a gathering with a with mostly people I didn't know quite some years ago, and somebody had recognised me from um, something I'd done on the TV or in the press that week and mentioned a particular town in the Upper Hunter Valley, and I then took over the story and, and described the family and described the boy in the family who subsequently took his own life this person asked me whether I knew the family I said no but I knew Jim Fletcher the complicity of the church I think what happened to me and others is horrendous the fact that this so-called Christian institution basically left us to the wolves it continues to upset me and infuriate me and it it is global right it I is mean, I, I've had a lot of involvement in the past in Australian cases the Bindoon boys, the Christian yep. brothers litigation and so on. But 
we read about this surprise, surprise in Ireland, yep. the United States, that movie Spotlight. They've learnt nothing from my observations. It continues. No. There's no reparation that could be considered adequate. How do you weed these guys out before they inflict carnage on young lives? One of the things that really bothers me is that the Catholic Church has kind of changed its business model a little bit in places like Ireland and Canada and, you know, the United States, New Zealand. But it, their growth is in in places like India and Latin America, where they don't know about this, and the church is undergoing an enormous growth there. And the institution itself, for mine, like all of the inquiries that have gone on around the world over the last 15, 20 years, all the revelations of the physical and sexual abuses, there is not a single person that I'm aware of in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church who has ever been successfully brought to account for allowing that to happen. So enabling, in other words, not... Yeah, absolutely. Not offending, but knowledge of the offence, not only doing nothing about it, but as we've seen in Australia, as you've described so eloquently, moving them to a distant parish with no warnings to the future parishioners that this person is a child sex abuser. And I think that one of the, the reasons they get away with this is because the culture of secrecy that surrounds this behaviour that you've touched on. But how do you think that manif manifests on a, a broader scale? Because that's what you've, you've given an example of what would have happened in your home had you spoken. But what would have happened in your community if you'd spoken out against this priest? Yeah, look, I know, and even in recent years in what you'd like to think of more enlightened times, I know families that have been completely ostracised for speaking up against the Catholic Church. And even my own parents, who remain devoutly Catholic up until, you know, and they're, they're both still alive and, and now quite elderly, but they even got to a point where maybe 15 years ago, they, they stopped going to church, not because they necessarily stopped believing, but because of the way they were treated. It was like not support for the fact that this had happened to one of their children, but quite the opposite. Like, how dare somebody air their dirty laundry? And again, I still have people that once were close to me who think that I kept, should have kept my grubby little secret to myself. I think too, for parents, when the aha moment arrives, when the truth of the matter arrives, when the story is validated, it inevitably creates huge dissonance for them as well. Yeah. Because here's something they've believed in, they've poured money into it. It's been their life, the focal point of their lives in many ways, their faith. To have that blown asunder by the reality of what occurred, it must be extraordinarily difficult to put all that back together somehow. Yeah, I think that you make a really good point, Tim, that for people like my parents, you know, now, as I said, they're quite elderly, but that dissonance for them, particularly my father, so who, as I've said, is not... not um, you know, not the nicest um, parent to have and a, a very unhappy man. But I think part of his reaction to me when this story did come out was exactly that, that I must be the one telling the lies because he spent his whole life being told about how good the Catholic Church was and how pure it was and, and the need to protect the church at all cost. And I think that sort of cognitive dissonance for so many people is just too much that they can't believes, some people still can't believe, an institution that promotes the sorts of things that it does about 
tolerance, forgiveness, love. It could throw tens of thousands of children to the wolves. Well, I think that's part of their rationale. I mean, I've also assessed a lot of these offenders and their argument is, which is completely specious, that the church didn't intervene by bringing in the police because they wanted to show, the institution wanted to show tolerance and love and forgiveness and on a wing and a prayer, literally, hope they might change by moving the environment. It, it demonstrated, if, if you accept that, and I don't, that uh, they're incredibly ignorant about what child sex abuse is all about. It's unremitting nature. And just because you change the four walls of a church and the hills outside, uh, that's all you change. You don't change the individual or the drives behind the offending. And they need to be better educated. But you would think now, Royal Commission, Senate inquiries, litigation on a worldwide scale, that they might start to narrow their focus upon the problem and how they're part of the problem. Yeah, well, Tim, I'd like to think so, but but truly, I have no confidence at all that that's happened. And as long as I draw breath, I'll be every opportunity I get to remind people about what this institution has done and effectively accepted no responsibility for it. And, and you, you mentioned, Tim, about this, this sort of justification of the church where they've found someone to be an offender, that, that because they're the Catholic church, they need to be forgiving and loving and help people get back on their feet and so on and not, not to sin again. But what puts the lie to that is the way that they treated people like me when we came forward with threats, trying to discredit people. He's now dead, but the former Archbishop of Adelaide threatened to sue me. Because you spoke out? Because I spoke out. So that kind of sense of, you know, we're, we're Christian and we are doing this, we're looking after our priests out of Christian love, it's a farce. So how was Fletcher actually caught in the end? You were one of his victims. You said there were a yeah. number of other victims that followed. How, how was he actually identified as a perpetrator? So the, the young man who made the first complaint against Fletcher had, this is no, won't be a surprise to either of you, lots of his own demons and mental health issues. And one night uh, he was watching TV and was by his own, you know, subsequent admission. So I'm not telling tales out of school. He was incredibly intoxicated and saw a program on TV about a pedophile Catholic priest and a victim that had tried to come forward. And he rang Fletcher and hurled abuse at him. And Fletcher kind of, don't know what you're talking about, then some veiled threats. And that young man, to his eternal credit, went to the police. So I think in the end, I was probably the next cab off the rank. But I think in the end, before Fletcher died, the police had identified at least nine or 10 victims. And really significantly, when Fletcher appealed to the High Court, Pearlie's conviction, one of the justices made note of the similarity in Fletcher's MO for all of this, the way he operated, and the similarity in all of us as human beings, all of his victims, same physical character. So he was very clear on his victimology. So, so what a criminologist, we, uh, victimology is the study of victims. So the victim type, the age, the gender, the family, the demographic, all of that, he was very... Uh, targeted in who you're selecting to groom? Like serial killers, you know. They often have a, a, a profile of the person they want to abduct, rape and kill. 
and they often look the same, they behave in the same ways. Could I ask this? You were, I think you said in your early adolescence when this started, how old was he? Yeah, he was probably at that point, Tim, he might have been about 30, I reckon, when it started. So around when I was 13, he was probably 30. Do you think you were his first victim or had there been had he honed his skills on on other victims by this point? Because he seemed very skilled by the time he he groomed your family. I think, Zant, that he, like most of these people, he had been perfecting his technique. So I know for sure that he'd had a couple of other victims around about the same age as me, maybe even a tiny bit before me, but they were very different, more opportunistic. And I think those opportunistic offences against boys, if that wasn't as gratifying as he wanted it to be, he was starting to think through what his type was and how he could get access to his type. So he's predatory and opportunistic. Yeah, and I think, Tim, that he became far more predatory as he worked out what his approach was going to be. He became bolder and probably more confident because there were no consequences. That's right. If anyone, and as I said, I'm, I've got no doubt that his bishop knew, that some other priests knew, and, and look, this is an ongoing sore point for me, all Fletcher had to do, and I've got no doubt that this is what he did do, is the bishop confronts him and he says, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. At that point, the bishop's hands are tied because he's made a confession and the bishop can't do anything, even if he wanted to go to civil authorities, and I don't think he ever did. But at that point, the Catholic Church had his hands tied, the seal of confession. So what made you, in the end, you, you weren't the first person to report Fletcher. What, was, what made you, in the end, I guess, go to the police? Is that the step that you took? Yeah, I did, Xanth, and I think it was because when I heard about that first young man who'd come forward, it was like being hit with a shovel. And again, in hindsight, people say, well, that seems a bit inconceivable. But the thought never struck me that there might have been other victims. The thought never struck me that I was, despite the fact that I was having a miserable life, that somehow or other I was a victim of this man. So I think when that came out, every bit of bottled up distress, anger, you know, and I had to do something with that. And and at some point I decided it could either destroy me or I could try and find a way to make that something useful. So it was quite cathartic for you. You were carrying around these multiple feelings all your life, really. Once the disclosure occurred, beyond it being cathartic at some level, did you also feel uh, any sense of regret or guilt uh, about that? Because from my observations, not generalising to you, um, often when people go to the police, they're relieved to get it off their chest but then it triggers other kind of emotions within them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that guilt word, Tim, I I remember talking to my psychiatrist over a long period of time. It was like I felt like um, that word guilt was tattooed on my forehead and that people could see it. It was such a strong emotion in me that all of those, even though for a long time I couldn't accept that, that I was a victim. So for a long time, every victim that came after me was a victim of my inaction and I carried incredible guilt for their suffering because if I'd done something about it, even if I've copped the flogging from my father, but if something had happened to stop Fletcher back in his very early days, then 
so many of those other people would have been spared. And how old, how old were you when you spoke out? How long did it take you to reach that point? In my late 30s, then. Wow. Okay. So that's, and, and we know this from victims of sexual abuse, that it takes years, decades, if ever people speak. So, you know, obviously it took you a very long time to get to the point where you felt you could disclose. Yeah. And um, sorry, Tim, but I was just going to say that I think the Royal Commission worked out that for people sexually assaulted within a Catholic church institution, the average time period from the abuse ceasing to the person saying anything, and these are the ones that have come forward, the average time is 24 years. Because of all the dynamics you've described, the guilt, the fear, the denial of others, do you think now that things are out in the open a bit more with the Royal Commission and so on and uh, there's certainly a lot more publicity about offenders being charged, convicted and going to jail, do you think that that may lead to other victim survivors uh, coming forward more readily and sooner? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Tim, and, I, and I'm sure that's happened. I'm sure there is no doubt that there's there's safety in numbers. There's no doubt, I think, when a victim survivor sees that other people have come forward and have been believed and have got support, and I'm not talking about support from the Catholic institution, but support from the wider public. The response to me after I went public with my story was overwhelmingly, enormously supportive. So I think you're you're absolutely right. And And again, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do what I did, to help other people. My next question... What can be done? You know, do you have a different way of recruiting press? Should you, waving the psychologist's flag, require them to go through detailed psychometric tests to see if they have this propensity? Uh, because it seems to me they're closing the gate after the bull has bolted at the moment. Well, yeah, look, I, no, I agree. I don't think they're doing much of that. I mean, one of the issues, and I, you know, long since stopped um, being a Catholic, but, uh, you know, but I think because there's such a lack of, people in Australia wanting to become priests, that they're now bringing in priests from overseas. And again, there's no vetting of those people. It's just trying to get somebody in each of the churches on a Sunday. I was going to say, rather than shifting them into remote parts of Australia, they're shifting them into different countries now. Yeah, exactly right. So I think you're spot on. There needs to be... But again, Tim, the institution itself doesn't... They're not bothered with this because after all these inquiries... A few of them have suffered some, you know, the individual priests have been convicted, that's for sure. But the institution itself and the people who enabled this have effectively acted with impunity. And that's what concerns me, that I don't think the institution has learned any lessons. So here we've got dual level perpetrator, really. We've got the individual offenders who are targeting victims. And then we've got the institutional offender, which is enabling, it's covering up, you know, it's it's hiding from the responsibility that it has to protect these individuals that are being targeted. Yeah, absolutely. And and Xanth, if I can like a little analogy, I guess, is for a long time I was on the board of a regional bank. So not a big bank, but it was regulated by the Prudential Regulatory Authority and by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, because a bank looks after people's money. So if an individual employee of that bank embezzles money or steals money, that employee is in trouble 
But if the institution, if the bank breaches an APRA regulation or an ASIC regulation, then they could lose their banking licence, the board of directors can find themselves in jail. And the situation, I think, is identical. So in, if you use Australia as an example, I, one of the things that I argued long and loud for is that we should have a regulatory authority that is paid for by the, these institutions that monitors those institutions, just as we do with banks, independent, like APRA, like as you know, banks pay for APRA to regulate them. And I think institutions like the Catholic Church should have to pay for the privilege of having children in their care by having an independent regulator that monitors what they do, not not just rely on the Catholic Church saying we've learned our lesson, this won't happen again. And there need to be repercussions on an institutional level when this kind of abuse comes to light. Absolutely, Xanth. And there has, around the world, I would, you know, challenge anyone to give me an example of where the institution has suffered any serious repercussions. For example, in Australia, the Catholic Church still gets billions of dollars in funding for education. And they get tax-free income because tax they're a income. No tax. Yep. No. And we've had, we've had headlines about the Catholic Church running public hospitals but telling people what sort of treatment they can and can't have based on Catholic doctrine. How is that a thing? Well, I read about that. I was appalled to read it. Here's a thought. We start taxing them. And the money that's obtained through the taxation doesn't go into consolidated revenue. It goes into a sinking fund to deal with the issues we've described, treatment, reparation and so on of victims and recruitment of priests. Now, there's a radical thought. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I like that thought. Yeah, look, I wholeheartedly agree. Speaking out is obviously incredibly important. We need to hear about your experience because I think... I mean, I've known you for a long time and I've learned new things today, which I didn't know, which has given me insight. So that advocacy is incredibly important. But I have seen you over the years when this has hit the media and you're often the person the media turn to for commentary because you're a very staunch advocate for victim survivors. And obviously with your legal background, your personal background, you're the ideal person to speak to these issues. But I have seen the toll that it takes on you when you have done multiple interviews and this is really front and centre again for you and we've even talked about this that at times you've needed to back away from that because I can see the emotional toll that it still takes on you even today. Yeah you're you're right Xanth and I'm not sure how to describe that it's it's almost like if whatever mix of experiences and skills and qualifications and opportunities or whatever I've had I, I feel like I'm compelled because I can I feel like I have to do that sort of stuff, even if it comes at a personal cost. So in one way, it's empowering and you're a great advocate for these issues, but obviously every time you talk about it, and that's why we're so grateful that you've spoken to us today, it's got to trigger a whole lot of stuff uh, without wanting to drill down into your emotional state. That's not my purpose, but inevitably it's a trigger for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is, Tim. And even, you know, now I'm kind of struggling to hold my emotion because it is very, it's very tough ground for me. And Xanth is one of the people that I feel like I can um, 
talk to and and lean on that that gets me back on an even keel if if that makes any sense that i have worked out and a lot of people like me have never been able to work out how to do it i have worked out how to keep myself reasonably well and again i'm enormously grateful for whatever it is that's made me like that i'm to have that sort of resilience because a lot of people i have known have not had that resilience and aren't with us anymore but i think it's a way for you all that guilt that you spoke of for the other victims that you and i totally get why you feel guilt because if you'd spoken out earlier and i not i'm saying i'm certainly not saying you should but i understand why you felt that but now you you are using your your resilience and your voice and you're empowering those not only of Catholic child sexual abuse but other victims of other types of abuse. You can empower them to have their voice because they can see a strong, eloquent, resilient individual taking control of that situation and turning around on those who caused your harm. Yeah, yeah, and, and as I said, Xanth, I'm enormously grateful that whatever combination of things has led me to that point that I am at that point that I can do this that I can I have insight into my own emotions into my own history and it is a gift I think to be able to help other people and I've had you know people that I don't know stop me in the street to thank me for for the work that I've done and and I think as a teacher at a university I think you know, maybe it adds some legitimacy to and some credibility to to the sorts of things that I try and instill into into our students. Well, I was going to say that actually because I see you paying this forward every single day. I mean, you're working today with some of our placement students at Newcastle. A folk, a very strong focus we had is on social justice. We're very victim survivor focused, giving them their voices, and I think your personal experiences are so valuable to our students who are the next generation of change makers. And for you to be able to help educate them and shape them going forward, I think is incredibly valuable. And we're very lucky to have you working with our students because they learn so much from you. So, you know, I think we're all so grateful for your strength and resilience and the fact you're willing to share and speak for those other victims. And I think that's an amazing, amazing thing that you're paying forward. And I just, you know, without getting too personal, I hope you're okay because it's been difficult for you. Uh, deep respect, mate, and we're very grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Tim and Xanth. And, yes, I will be okay, Tim. As I said, I'm, I have developed some strategies for dealing with, you know, because this is hard work. Yeah, Emotionally, it is hard work. It's very draining, but I think it is a, such an important conversation because if we don't have these conversation, these people get away with it. it. It passes under the radar and we have to stop that from happening. Yeah, that's right, Xanth. And, and I'm determined to have some sort of a legacy that m- makes my brief journey on this planet worth the while. Well, yeah, I think the hundreds of students who you've helped over the last few years since we've worked together are your legacy and certainly that will continue. And I just want to, you know, heartfelt thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, sharing your incredible insight that's come from experience and training and education. And we're all just so grateful for you taking the time to speak to us. Yeah, no, thanks for the opportunity. What an amazing guest. Thank you, Peter. I got so much out of that. And again, it's about the interface of academic, my sort of clinical experience over decades, and I remember this Bindoon case very well, 
And Peter's courage in discussing what happened to him and the impact upon him, riveting. Yes, uh, uh, incredibly powerful. Now, I knew Peter's story to a certain extent. Um, we've talked about it mostly from a kind of academic perspective, but I've never, I've never seen that depth from him. And what really struck me was the impact it has on him even today speaking about it. And I think that was really moving and takes a lot of courage to speak about something that has, is so traumatizing. You can't overstate the impact of sexual abuse on children as a lifelong consequence. Mm, absolutely. So thanks for listening to Motive and Method. I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson Munro. And if you found this episode interesting, you can give us a five-star review. You can subscribe to our channel and feed or recommend us to your friends and family. You can also set up an alert so that you'll be told when a new episode is available. We'll be back next week, and thank you for listening.